0: You can take a Bible in your hand. there are Bibles available at the back. and uh, today is the first Sunday in the Advent season. So we're taking a break for the season from our usual studies in First Peter, and to be reminded of the meaning and significance of the birth of our Lord Jesus Christ. And uh, we'll be looking in Luke. we'll be looking in Luke's Gospel. We'll be in chapter 1, and uh, in our morning services we'll be looking at the coming of Jesus largely from the perspective of the Virgin Mary, Luke 1, and today we'll be thinking about the Annunciation, which is when the angel Gabriel came and broke the news to the Virgin that she would bear a child, he would be the Messiah, and Lord willing, next week we will consider Elizabeth, the greeting when Mary visits her cousin Elizabeth's home and Elizabeth responds to Mary and her child. greeting this might be. And the Lord said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favour with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Amen. We praise God that he's spoken in his holy, inerrant word. I think for many of us, the Christmas season is a bit like a well-decorated Christmas tree. They are layers of tinsel, lights, all sorts of decorations and ornaments. It's a wonderful family tradition. We have, you know, we have ornaments that we put on our tree which we've collected over you know, the last 20-odd years. And you know, they have particular meaning, some from a Christmas market somewhere or a gift or something like that. And it's, it's actually a, tra- a, tra- a, tra- a tradition which is very helpful in and of itself. And if you decorate well, it can be hard, at least from a distance, to tell whether this is a real tree or a plastic tree? Was this, is this a real tree that was cut down from wind ladder yesterday? Or a plastic tree that was kept in a box? Come and have a look afterwards. And you bring out every year for the Christmas season. It can be hard sometimes to tell which is which. And some people swear by one and some people swear by another. We have a real tree and don't I know it? Because I'm vacuuming up things until October the next year. But I think the Christmas message... The Christmas season has become so encrusted with the things that go along with the season. The sentiment, the tradition, the food. I'm starting my diet now for Christmas Day. The music, you know, the presents, the stuff that goes with Christmas. And sometimes it's hard for us to determine. Whether or not the Christmas message is just another fable, another Christmas myth, to warm our hearts in the bleak midwinter, the crisp mornings by the derwent water, or whether it is in fact real and true and authentic after all. Which is why it is so helpful to read Luke's account of the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Because Luke's burden, his whole burden, he's got two books, remember, Luke, Luke and Acts. And his burden is to root the coming, the life, the death, the resurrection, the ascension, the life of Jesus' followers in history. That was his burden, to, to, to convince, to persuade most excellent Theopolis. And the birth of Jesus is not an invention of a storyteller. You can say, well, I know that, but be, but just have that convinced in your heart. The, the birth of Jesus is not just a nice thing which has created a season. The birth of Jesus is not the invention of a storyteller. Luke tells us right from the beginning that it is an eyewitness account. Luke 1 verse 2, right at the beginning of his book, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us. It is an orderly account. And so Luke marshals eyewitness testimony. And Luke sets it all in order concerning the ministry of the Lord Jesus so that in verse 4 of his opening chapter you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. So Luke's gospel is eyewitness testimony. It's set in order carefully so that we might have certainty. Maybe you are asking questions about the big issues of life. There are many who struggle to know which way to turn, to know which way is up. And here in Luke's Gospel, in the account of the coming of the Lord Jesus, we can find certainty. Answers to the biggest questions. So the first thing is that Luke's Gospel is a real world message that took place in a real place, at a real time, with real people. And we see that in the story of the Annunciation. Luke is concerned to highlight the facts. So in verse 26, he thinks it's important for us to know, to root it in history, that it took place in the sixth month. So it took place at a particular time, in a particular place, in a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to particular people, Mary and Joseph, of the house and lineage of David. Now Luke is also concerned for the medical details. It is announced to a virgin. The virgin would be with child, miraculously and supernaturally. And Luke is very concerned all the time to show us that this is real truth. This is rooted in history. But not, but not, but not only is Luke concerned to show us the facts, Luke is also concerned to show us the challenges. Luke doesn't clean up his account. It's not legend writing here because when the angel appears to Mary, she is what? Afraid. That's slightly different from all the paintings you see. She's afraid. And as the angel begins to talk to her, verse 34, Mary is even more confused than she was at the beginning of the conversation. I imagine I would be if an angel popped by and had a quick chat. I probably would end up <laughs> shaking in a corner somewhere. But it's only at the end of her dialogue with the angel that faith begins to dawn in her heart. So you see, Luke doesn't clean up the account you know, so, you know, so that we can justify it you know, as, as a legend. Here it is, warts and all. Mary is afraid, Mary is struggling. Mary is overwhelmed and really very scared at what she's been told and all that is taking place. And it is really good news for us that Luke is so concerned to show us the facts and to show us the challenges of what is taking place, because it tells us that his message is a message for the real world. And that was my concern in praying about it, about even doing an Advent season, that I think it's a great thing, by the way, to break into the seasons of the church, you know, to talk about Advent at Christmas, to talk about the cross and resurrection at Easter, because it helps, us, it helps us greatly to be reminded of the truth about Jesus. But I mean, sometimes you think of an Advent season and you think, well, I can almost write it myself for him. But what I wanted to say, it's a message of real facts for real people with real difficult challenges, who know what it is to be afraid, who know what it is to be confused and concerned. So if you fit any of those brackets right there, this is a message for you. Because the story of Jesus is not a myth. It is not a fable on a first century towards the night before Christmas. This is not what it is. Luke is not... Dealing with fake news, we hear that a lot these days, don't we? This is not fake news, this is not Twitter at one o'clock in the morning. Luke is not a spin doctor, Luke is a medical doctor, and Luke is concerned with reality. And that means that Jesus Christ and the message of Jesus Christ is significant. So, the message of Jesus Christ, the first sermon in Advent season. It's not just a nice thing so we go away feeling cosy. It is for real world people who have real world problems. Ergo, it's for you and it's for me. So the first thing I want you to see is Mary's fear. fear. We've referred to it, but Luke doesn't sugarcoat this account. I want you to see Mary's fear, first of all. Mary's fear, when Luke says in verse 29 that Mary was greatly troubled... He uses an interesting word. It is a version of a more common Greek verb. It is an emphatic version of a Greek verb that means to be acutely distressed, to cause acute distress. So that's what Mary is feeling, acute distress. The day that Gabriel showed up at her home. And so when we're told that she was seeking to discern what sort of greeting this might be, We're not to imagine a sort of mild curiosity on Mary's part. She's not serene. This is somebody who is deeply distressed. She is profoundly troubled. And Mary is not at all reassured by the angel's declaration to her of divine favor. It's a terrifying moment. I have no idea, and by the way, probably not good to speculate, but I'm I'm sure that Gabriel bore no resemblance at all to those cherub angels that you can buy to put on top of your Christmas tree. I I think he looked fairly scary because this was a terrifying moment for Mary. And Mary is so scared, in fact, that the angel repeats his greeting to her a second time and adds a word of reassurance. Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favour with God. So the favour that has been lavished upon Mary, this good news that he has come to her with, is good news that works for a scared teenage girl. It is good news for parents. It is good news for all of us who, like Mary, are greatly troubled. And like her, find ourselves looking for answers. So the reason that Jesus was born, the reason that Jesus came, At the heart of the message of the first Christmas is that perfect love may cast out fear. Do not be afraid. What a message. And it is so that when the Word of God comes to us, as it did to Mary that day in the sixth month here in Nazareth, that our response might not be any longer perplexity or confusion, but faith, trust, joyful submission, and the certainty for which Luke is writing and seeking to provide to us about God's good and perfect plan, which focuses on the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Mary's fear. But secondly, Mary's favour. I want you to notice the favour shown to Mary, which is the language that Gabriel uses twice in the passage. In verse 28 and in verse 30, Mary is told that she's a favoured one. Gabriel says, Mary is highly favoured. She has found favour with God. And we use that word differently than it has been used here. Because we tend to use the word favour to use something like a kindness shown to us by someone who is in our debt. Or because of the relationship we sustain to someone because we we have some leverage with them. How many times... Have you maybe, I mean, I've actually said it to my, you know, you know, to my son repeatedly. Will you do me a favour? Will you do me a favour? When you come to them and say, will you do me a, please do me a favour? And your hope is that they respond favourably. But that's a misreading. That's a massive misreading of what the angel says. And it's a misreading which has caused problems which has caused mistakes in the history of the church, not least, I have to say, amongst the Roman Catholics. And from that misunderstanding of Gabriel's greeting, the Roman church has developed the dogma that Mary herself was without sin, was that Mary was born without sin. And more than that, since she is full of favour, In Roman Catholic theology, she can dispense favour to others who pray to her, seeking for her help. And so the Catholics have developed this prayer, which is based on the language of the angels greeting to Mary and Elizabeth's greeting to her later on in the chapter. You may have heard it. Hail Mary, full of grace, blessed art thou amongst women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners now and at the hour of our death. I said it quickly because I didn't particularly want anyone to hear me say it. Because it's a serious misreading of the teaching of the passage. And carefully and respectfully, it is not warranted at all by the Word of God. Because the focus here is not to draw our attention to Mary. There is something in Mary for which she has been favoured and rather to help us understand the favour she has been shown, it is the grace of God that is lavished on her, despite of who Mary is, not because of who Mary is. In fact, the word favour comes from the word charis, which means grace. That's what favour means. It means grace, charis. So grace is lavished upon undeserving Mary, Mary the sinner, because Luke has been emphasising Mary's ordinarius—is that such a word? Not her extraordinarius. Sorry, I'm bad with my pronunciation. But this is what makes grace so wonderful. Grace breaks in on people who do not deserve it. Sometimes it's very helpful. I mean. I, I, I grew up with this saying, and maybe you did too, that, 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 when, that when you look on someone, you don't judge them necessarily, you say, there for the grace of God, go I. Do you generally ever say that? There, but for the grace of God, go I. Because grace breaks on people who do not deserve it. I don't know about you, but I if you knew the thoughts in my heart, I don't deserve it. We receive from the hand of God a favour for which we have not looked. We may not have even realised how desperately in need of His mercy and grace and favour we really are. The glory of the Gospel. I I don't have to clean up. He shows grace on me. And here in Luke's Gospel, and particularly in the Annunciation, the favour and the grace that is given to Mary is not a merit that can be cashed in. But it's the grace and favour that is coming to Mary. The grace and favour that must come to us if we're to find grace and acceptance with God at all is all bound up in the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so as the angel begins to explain what he means... When he tells her that she has been highly favoured, his explanation focuses on two things about Jesus. He talks to her about Jesus' identity, who he is, and then he talks to her about Jesus' mission, what he came to do. And if you want to know what grace is, favour. If you want to know where to find it, you cannot do better than to study these two themes in the angel's message for Mary. Who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? What did he come to do? And grace is bound up in the identity of Jesus and the mission of Jesus. Let's think about what the angel tells us about Jesus' identity quickly and then his mission. If you look at verse 31 and 32, you see Jesus' identity. Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son. You should call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. Two things about the identity of Jesus. Number one, Jesus is a true and real human being. He will be conceived in the womb of the Virgin. Jesus does not arrive on the scene of history in the same way that Gabriel did that day in Mary's home, just appearing. But Jesus came into the world. He was conceived in Mary's womb And all the usual processes of cellular multiplication and fetal development take place for Jesus in Mary's womb as it did for you and me. So it means, you know, there. So Jesus was eventually delivered of his mother and he was nursed and cared for her, cared for her just like any other by her, just like any other human being. He was taught and instructed he grew. He matured. He was subject to all the normal processes of human growth and mental development. Jesus wept. He slept when he was tired. He ate when he was hungry. He wept at his friend's graveside. He bled when the nails were pounded into his hands and feet. He was thirsty on the cross and nailed between two thieves, his human heart stopped beating as he died. Jesus Christ is man. Jesus Christ is fully human in mind and heart and soul and body. He has a human nature. But Gabriel's greeting also tells us that the baby who is growing in the womb of the virgin, will be more than just a man. Jesus will be truly human and He's the Son of the Most High God. When Mary asks the question in verse 34, the angel says to her in response that her supernatural conception of the Lord Jesus in her womb will be the mysterious work of the Holy Spirit and therefore the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. Not man only, but God the Son who has from eternity dwelt in perfect fellowship with the Father and with the Holy Spirit in the unity of the blessed Trinity. The God who fills the universe and upholds it by the word of his power. Who is the word who was with God and who was God in the beginning and by whom all things were made that have been made. He is Jesus Christ, Mary's infant child. That's why those words, we sing them so we hardly Know know what we're singing, but veiled in flesh, the Godhead see hell incarnate deity, pleased as men, man with men to dwell. Jesus, our Emmanuel. And why is that important to see those two facets in the identity of the Lord Jesus Christ? Why must he both God and man in two distinct natures and one person forever? Why does it matter? This is why. On the one hand, there's an ordinary human being, there's a real man. Mary's son was equipped and qualified to stand among us as one of us, filling our shoes as it were, able to sympathize with us in our weaknesses, plumbing the depths of our sorrow, taking our place, bearing our guilt, paying our price, dying that we might live. But on the other hand, As eternal God, He can pay what no finite creature, a debt no finite creature could ever pay. The ultimate debt. And those are the dimensions of our problem. We're in big trouble because our sin and guilt before God is infinite. We have no possibility on our own of repaying. Praise God that His appointed Messiah and Redeemer is no mere creature but as an infinite capacity as eternal God to pay in full. And not just for one or two or a few, but as infinite God there is room for all people and for everyone who would come to him. He is able to save to the uttermost all who come to God by him. He can fully quench the demands of divine justice that burn hot in wrath against our sin and make full atonement for sinners. That is the best news you'll ever hear. Here is the glory of the Christmas story. This is the wonder that is on offer to us. This is hope kindled, despair and fear banished at last. Fear not, Jesus has come. The babe in Mary's arms is the everlasting God. God who stands in holiness to judge has stepped onto the scene in frail human nature. Why? To stand in my place. To satisfy the justice that my sin has incurred. To make redemption possible for the least and the worst of us. And if you don't grasp that message, you do not understand Christmas at all. How many people will be singing Christmas carols this season? And they don't believe that. Why did He come? He came to die. So that you can be free of your sin. And you can spend eternity with Him. That's good news. That's who Jesus is. And what did He come to do? We've just referred to it. He is Saviour. He is the Saviour of sinners. Sinners like me we will be celebrating the Lord's table after our service this morning. Saviour of sinners like me. Jesus comes to make a new beginning, to be the perfect rescuer. When Mary asks her question in verse 34, how will this be since I am still a virgin? The angel does not really explain, but he simply points her to the mysterious secret working of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit will come upon you. The power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. The language he uses echoes the ministry of the Holy Spirit who hovered over the surface of the waters at the creation in Genesis 1. I love this thought. The Holy Spirit was poised to bring life and light at the first creation. And now he comes, overshadowing, hovering the Virgin to bring new creation, forming of her substance the flesh and human nature of our Redeemer, new creation in Jesus Christ. I love it. The Holy Spirit was there at the creation, the new creation, a new humanity, a second Adam. And He will bring a new beginning for everyone who trusts Him. Genesis 3.15, that's why I had it read this morning. God judged our first parents after their transgression and sin. And He made that promise to Eve that one day the Son will be born who would crush the serpent's head. The seed of the woman would come and triumph over the serpent Satan and bring salvation to the world. Hallelujah, my friends. He has come. The Saviour has come. The second Adam. Holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners. All mankind, descending from Adam by ordinary generation, sinned in him and fell with him in his first transgression. But everyone who descends from Adam in the ordinary way is a sinner and is guilty in God's sight. But Jesus doesn't descend from Adam in the ordinary way, which is why the angel says, at the outset, the child that will be born will be holy. No one else has ever been holy from beginning to end. Holy, harmless, undefiled, tempted in every way, yet without sin. The second Adam who obeys when the first fails failed who keeps the law of God so that lawbreakers like me might find a refuge in his righteousness so number one he's the perfect savior if you're confused as to you know how many number ones i've said don't worry i'm confused too but hope you get the 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 the, the, the point there's but there's another final part, part to his mission verse 32 and 33 again And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever and of his kingdom there will be no end. And the angel is echoing the prophecy of Isaiah 9, which we'll be looking at in the afternoon, by the way. If you want to come and hear about the wonderful counselor, we're looking at that this afternoon. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, of the increase of his government and of his peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it, to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. Jesus is not only Redeemer and Rescuer, he is the King. He rules and reigns over all. If Jesus is God's great King, then he is not simply an option you may consider. He summons you, and you're obligated to bend your knee to Him. I was thinking about this. Many times we're told who to trust, especially in these days. But this is not a take-it-or-leave-it proposition. Jesus is God's King, who summons you to come to Him, to trust Him. And the sobering thing is, I've thought about this often in recent weeks, that everyone everywhere will bow the knee to Jesus. Everyone, everywhere. Whether in this life, with joy and faith, seeing and finding in Him the salvation they desperately need, or when He comes again as King of kings to judge the living and the dead. And if you haven't bowed the knee to Him in this life, you will bow the knee to Him then in regret. That's what makes our message so urgent. Every single person ever will one day say, Jesus is Lord. Because Jesus is King. So I beg you, let it be the first. While there is still time, while it is still today, bow the knee to Jesus as King. He is Saviour and He is King. So we've seen the favour that Mary had. We've seen the grace that Mary was shown. And finally, see the faith that Mary exhibits, which is the narrative arc. This is the journey. She's terrified, but she moves from fear to confusion and in the end, she comes to a place of faith. Submission, faith and trust in the Lord and His promises. You see the marvelous kindness of the angel Gabriel towards Mary. He sees what is going on. And after he delivers his message, he offers her some help. He says, in effect, and Mary, I can see this is a lot for you to take in. I can see you're terrified. Can you, let me give you some help? Can you trust God's promises? Here is some evidence that with God, nothing is impossible. Go and see Elizabeth, she's pregnant. And she's old. And she's pregnant with a child who will be John the Baptist, the forerunner of Jesus, the one who will go ahead proclaiming good news. And that, it seems, is enough for Mary. She believes. Behold, I am the servant of your Lord, let it be to me according to your word. And I want you to notice carefully, because this is one of Luke's concerns, that faith in the Messiah is not a blind leap in the dark. It's not an exercise in wish fulfillment. Christianity is not a crutch for weak people who can't make it on their own. Christianity is based on evidence. Maybe you're a skeptic about the claims of Jesus. Maybe you're thinking this is pie in the sky when you die. Check it out. Read Luke's Gospel. Read through the story and see who Jesus is. What he said about himself. You could come to our Christianity Explored in January. You can bring your ugliest questions with you. Take the gloves off and explore the evidence for Jesus. I'm convinced that if you give the evidence a hearing, you will find it compelling. He is who he claimed to be. But let me close with this. There is a fascinating incident that happens later on in Luke's retelling of Jesus' life in Luke 11. In the same gospel, and Jesus is preaching, you know the story, and a great crowd is listening to him. and one of the women in the crowd is overwhelmed by the message, and she's gripped by this person, Jesus, and she exclaims out loud how awesome it must have been to Jesus to be Jesus' mother. So she said in Luke 11 verse 27, As he said these things, a woman in the crowd raised her voice and said, Blessed is the womb that bore you and the breasts at which you nursed. And Gabriel agrees with her that there is blessing coming to Mary. What is interesting to notice in that passage in Luke 11 is how Jesus responds when the woman cries out about Jesus' mother Mary. Jesus said, Blessed are are those who hear the word of God and keep it. The blessing for Mary was not that she was his mother. And the blessing for us lies here, that when we hear the Word of God, the promises of the Gospel, the offer of favour, bound up with Jesus. Who He is and what He came to do. The perfect Saviour of sinners. So like Mary, we bend the knee and say, Behold the servant of the Lord, let it be to me according to your Word. You may not think you need rescuing, but you do. He has come to be your rescuer and to deliver you. And the way you receive that mercy is so simple. You simply take Mary's posture and you trust the promise of a Savior in Jesus Christ. Would you do that today? Behold the servant of the Lord, let it be to me according to your words. Let us pray together. God our Father, we bow before You and we thank You that Jesus is God and that Jesus is infinitely able to save. We bless You that He is the second Adam to come to bring a new humanity, a new creation to make us new. And He is the great King who will reign forever and ever. I cry and I pray that everyone in this room would bend our knee to Him to receive the rescue that He offers so that no one here would be required to bend the knee in regret. We ask it in the Saviour's name. Amen.